Immersive Audio Podcast. In conversation with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, brought to you by 1618 Digital. Today, host Oliver Cadell is speaking with Tom Zertzis. Tom is the founder of Embryonic, a London-based digital studio that works to create cutting-edge XR media and other digital content. Tom is also a music producer and DJ who has traveled internationally to perform his work. Oliver sat down with Tom in his home-based studio in London to discuss the ways that virtual reality technology could enhance the experience of listening to music. Welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. I should be thanking you for having me in your house in Stratford. I must share this story. I, I have come to Tom's office where Ambronic is based and uh, realized that I forgot a critical bit of equipment, a cable. So we had to abandon the session and then Tom kindly offered to come back to his place, to his music studio where we're sitting at the moment, uh, where he has plenty of cables. And now we're up and running. So thank you, Tom. You're welcome. Welcome to the uh, slightly messy studio here. Tom, can you please introduce yourself and tell us about your role at Embryonic? Yeah, so I'm the founder of Embryonic. Uh, It's a company we've been specializing in virtual and augmented reality for almost five years now. Um, so we're quite an early adopter. Um, we develop, we basically, essentially, we help organizations communicate uh, using immersive technology. And uh, we do that by designing and developing applications, normally interactive applications that run on VR headsets or uh, mobile phones for augmented reality. Um, and a lot of our customers come; they're, they're kind of global. They tend to be businesses, um, and we're helping them at things like trade show events or special occasions to kind of really just engage audiences and uh, using the sort of this, this technology in really sort of interesting ways uh, to tell stories. Okay, so you've been going for about five years now. I'm I'm curious to hear how did you get to the VR industry? What was your transition? So I, I, I was one of those, um, well, it depends, do you want a long story or the short one? Um, so essentially, um, I've, I've been a computer geek from, since the age of 10. Uh, I started my career making video games for Sega uh, and other games companies like that. 
And so that kind of gives you a kind of good kind of broad education and the same kind of technologies that you do for virtual reality and, um, and augmented reality because a lot of that technology is the same as games. Um, and, uh, yeah, I worked at different companies. So I worked for Orange doing R&D. And they've all been kind of linked to this idea of gamifying stuff, making stuff fun and engaging. Um, then um, it was just pure chance. I kind of um, I'd quit my job um, a while back, and I was kind of looking for something new to do. And a, a friend of mine had just got the Oculus DK1 headset, and he was one of the first Kickstarter backers. And uh, he invited me back to his place, and he said, "Yeah, put this on." And I put this this uh, this this on this headset on, and it was um, you know it was grainy image. It's all pixely. Uh, um, I think it was the Tuscany demo, the famous Tuscany demo that was the very first demos of the Oculus Rift. But I just I was looking around and I just had this feeling of I had just like a shiver went down my back and I said I've seen the future, and that was it was just like this perfect thing of like here's. I'm searching for something to to do and to make my mark in. This is all the background I have um, in terms of you know um, making video games and, and also I'm a musician, but maybe we'll come onto that later. Uh, and this is something new that no one's doing that I can get excited about. And and that's really where Embonic founded and came and, and crystallized. And I I realized what I wanted to do for the the next, um, I don't know how, how many more years I want to do it for, but yeah, I mean, definitely for like next 10, 20 years probably of my life, yeah. Hopefully quite a few years. Definitely would like to come back to Embryonic, uh, but before that, I want to hear more about your background. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Hertfordshire, which is just kind of uh, about 30, 40 miles out of London. Um, my father is a Hungarian immigrant, uh, but my mother's English, um, very artistic family, so I've got lots of creativity going on there. Um, I studied in Bristol, and then I've been living in London ever since I, I left Bristol, which is uh, um, far too long. I don't want to embarrass and to disclose my real age here on, on your podcast. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I came to London uh, with a friend, and um, I had a dream, which was uh, to, to I was going to program video games at, during the day and uh, play jazz music at night because I was really into music and I, um, I was playing jazz band. I'm a piano player. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's how I started my, my life in London. Have you moved around quite a bit in, uh, whilst living in London or have you always stayed in East London, Stratford? Uh, yeah, no, I've moved around. I started off, I, I was lived in Ealing, lived in Golders Green, lived in Shepherd's Bush. Uh, I've never been, I've never lived south of the river, so I guess I'm a, a North Londoner, but I, I don't mind, west or east, it's fine. What's your favourite part of London? Stratford, of course, no, I'm joking. Uh, no, I guess, I don't know, actually, what is my favourite part of London? I don't think, I mean, London's got so many different areas, isn't it? It's like a, it's a, it's a multitude of villages. Um, I'm actually really happy where I'm where I'm living now. It's not the most glamorous area in the world, but it's um, it's very convenient. Um, I'm I'm not too worried about where I'm living. It's more about what I'm doing. I'm quite an in, internal fo- facing person, I guess, in that regard. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, you said you started developing uh, games at age of ten. That's very early for most people how did you end up in that position um so i am going to reveal my age now so i'm i'm a child of the 80s and um 
at that time, there was a big boom in like the very first uh, home computers came about. Clive Sinclair, you may have heard of the Sinclair Spectrum. Um, if you look at most of the big video games companies in this in the UK, they've all been set up by essentially people my generation who um, before that existed or you know as a kid all you had to play with was Lego uh, or Action Men and then computers came along and for the first time you could afford to have one in your home and we all started playing video games and you know we all take that for granted now because everyone's got video games on their PlayStation, Xbox on their mobile phone. Um, so I got one and my parents were very lucky and I managed to get hold of one of these devices and I just became fascinated with it and um, to start programming on it because you, games were quite expensive to buy and um, the, you know you just wanted to use these machines. So I just started making video games and selling them to my classmates at school. That's how it started. Wow, that's quite mind-blowing to be honest. Um, where do you begin Um to create a game, especially back back then, I assume even today would be quite hard because you have to find the resources and the tools and figure out how to you know make a step one and kind of take it from there. But back then, what was the way of making a game? What what were the steps? Well, of course, games were a lot simpler back then. And in fact, a lot of games that were made in that era were typically made by one or two people, as opposed to now when it takes hundreds of people to make a like a triple A console game. Um, how it's a good question actually. How did I learn? You through experimentation, um, and there also they were like quite a lot of magazines that you could buy about this kind of topic. This is before the internet, so you couldn't Google any of it. Um, this the computer came with a manual on a programming manual um, because. When they launched these machines, uh, you know, Clive Sinclair, certainly with Spectrum, he imagined it as an educational machine, and that's what he was marketing it as. Um, so that's why all the parents bought their kids this computer to held them into the new computer age that was coming, and they would, like, go off and, and program. And, of course, most kids didn't. They just downloaded games, and actually <laughs> it became a massive games machine. And that's. Um, but I was one of the kids who was wanted to actually program and, and I enjoyed it and so I, I pursued it enough that I got to a stage where I became reasonably competent at it. I mean when I was saying I'm making games you know we're not talking about Red Dead Redemption here or something <laughs> like that we're talking really really basic stuff like you know like tanks <laughs> uh, even tanks I mean I mean this is like uh, simple stuff like scrolling shooter or something like that or avoiding obstacles or mm -hmm. you know like worm games and uh, you know snake and those kind of thing, games um but you know that's that's with anything when you you, you start something you, you have to start from somewhere and that's 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 what we did back then so what's the connection with music you've mentioned that you are into music and you're a musician and um i'm gonna have to pretend here for a second that i don't know much about you, but actually, I do know that your career spanned much further and beyond that. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit more about it yourself? So, I record. Um, I, I mostly record under a name which is Shrikan, and um, I've been producing electronic house music for yeah, quite a good amount, at least fifteen years now. Um, and I released music on labels like Free Range, Defected, uh, Lazy Days, Urban Talk. Um, I started off again, just going back to childhood, I, I started off play, learning the piano at the age of six. So I became a reasonably competent sort of piano player by the time I was in my, my teenage years. 
uh, really into all sorts of, yeah, I guess like jazz and hip hop was my early influences, uh, electronic music, like Je Michel Jarre, kind of cheesy stuff. Then, yeah, I when I moved to London, I got into playing in bands and actually at university as well. Um, so I just played in lots of like jazz funk bands, uh, kind of as a session player. Um, again, had a kind of this, this kind of weird these eureka moments that come into your, your life. Again, a friend invited me to his his home, and in his home he had a, a PC uh, running. I probably maybe it was Cubase or Pro Tools or Logic or something like that. And he he had a sampler and he he played me some stuff he was doing, and I was just like. You can afford to have all this stuff at home, and it runs on your computer. I was, I wasn't, I wasn't keyed in on that point. I mean, I've been in studios because I've been recording studios, but they tend to be bigger studios, and I hadn't put two and two together that actually this technology had become affordable now. And hey, you know, because I've never had a lot of money, and I was like, well, I could save up and I can buy this, and and actually I could make my own music, and that became more interesting to me than playing in lots of different bands because although I love playing in bands, it was kind of always playing someone else's music. I always had to make collaborative decisions and I, and being a keyboard player, I wasn't like I wasn't like the sax player who could just turn up and be cool and blow his horn for a bit. I you know, I had to lug I had a Fender Rhodes, you know the Fender Rhodes uh, yeah. So it's a big uh, kind of heavy instrument from the from the seventies, um weighs a ton. And I just you know, I I'd bought a small car and I just had to drive around London. Like we used to play like jazz cafe, Ronnie Scotts, all these different these venues, and I'd always be lugging this thing around with me. And I just at some point I thought, well, I'd like to make my own music, and so I just got into into producing electronic music. And and again, was was very lucky. I was writing music for a while, just experimenting, and um, I put together this, this these bunch of tracks um but i kind of fought in kind of an album and i performed them i was supporting a friend's band at the time uh who had a, a, a kind of album launch and i played some of my tracks and at that gig uh was a was a djing um a producer called tom middleton who is um who's quite well known at the time well he still is well known he's he's like um, he's a legend of like a sort of ambient dance scene and he'd produce records of another guy called mark pritchard under global communication and and uh, i actually knew absolutely nothing about tom um but he 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 listened to it and he was like oh wow this is great you know come and he started kind of like mentoring me a bit um and so he introduced me to some other artists who were running labels and i had my first um album uh, put together on uh, a guy called Jamie Adele who's otherwise known as Jimster who runs Free Range Records and he put out my first album in about 2000 2001 and people liked it and uh i started to get calls from different parts of the world like can you come to japan can you come to moscow you know i was like wow um so i just you know i love doing it and so i just kept writing music uh, i kind of developed a kind of bit of a dj career i was traveling internationally all the time had an agent um i had a lot of fun and yes yeah, so i did that for quite a few years but but funnily enough it never was ever a full-time thing for me it's always been uh, a part-time thing i've never had to try and completely make a living out of of making music um which maybe is a good thing maybe is a bad thing i kind of i kind of wonder if i if i just spent all my time doing music what where i'd be and but other hands i'm i'm just a bit of a jack of all trades and i just 
I just get too excited by new opportunities and I just, I, I can't stick to one thing. So maybe I've, uh, it's, it's my own fault why I am. I have a confession to make. Um, if my memory um, doesn't let me down here, I think back in 2004, when I first time to the UK, I think my, I was my first ever visit and I came to see my brother in September, just for a couple of weeks. And uh, I bought a Mixmac magazine and uh, there was an attachment. Uh, it was a CD uh, mixed surprisingly by Tom Middleton. And uh, <laughs> very interestingly, uh, when I met Tom, uh, by accident, I discovered that one of the tracks that was on that CD was one of the Tom's track. I, I kid you not, that has become one of my favorite CDs for a very long time. I must have listened to it like over a hundred times. It probably has a few holes in it. I think I still got it somewhere. It was my kind of introduction into electronic music scene uh, in the UK. How how strange is that? Do you, do you remember that time? 2004 Mix Mag mixed by Tom Middleton? Yeah, was that the Jedi's Night Out one? Possibly. Or he, I, I was on a couple of, he, he did a few of them. But I think the Mix Mag one was a Jedi's Night Out, uh, which had, yeah, well, that was a really great compilation CD. Um, it had some great tracks on it. And I was very, very privileged to sneak one on there. Um, yeah. Where, where are you from originally then? Um, I'm originally from Latvia. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, and uh, I moved to the UK. Actually, this podcast is not about me. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you can take over now. Um, no, I'm, I moved permanently in 2006, June, if I recall correctly, which is about 12 years ago now. But I th- very, I remember really well that summer 2004 because it was like. Um, it was like uh, being in a movie. It was all about house music. It's, it's very serendipitous, isn't it, in that regard? Let's get back to Earth now. Um, and I'm curious to hear, what was your first immersive experience? You mentioned your first experience uh, of kind of seeing how electronic music was made um, at your mates. You also mentioned your first VR experience on Oculus which I believe was an experience in Tuscany. Was it one of those or was it something else that kind of uh, made you realise that um, I really want to get into it and make a career out of it potentially? I think that was the start of it. I mean, it didn't, it didn't happen to us. Like I saw the Oculus demo and just went off and started doing VR. There was a, there was, there was a gap. Um, the opportunity came up. Um, I worked on this project called Play Sage Gatehead, which was probably the first project that... Uh, one of the first projects Embryonic did. And um, I was invited by a friend of mine who runs a fantastic uh, art design company up in uh, Gateshead, Newcastle, uh, called Atomhawk. And um, I used to work with um, Juan Ashiani, who, who who's the founder of that studio. And uh, he invited me to get involved in this opportunity because uh, place, what Sage Gateshead is, is um, the North's premier music but venue and it's right next to their offices and um it's a 10th anniversary it's beautiful buildings designed by norman foster and his associates and um for his 10th anniversary they invited like a 
hundred musicians to come in and play the building like an instrument. So you, as a concert, you'll just be in the auditorium, not even an auditorium, you'd actually be in the kind of reception area, which is just a beautiful space. And all these musicians can come in and just hit the walls and hit the floors. And we pitched them this idea, which was, uh, why don't we recreate your building in 3D and then allow, we'll record the the concert and then allow people to listen back to it later, but they can kind of explore the building. So they can go around the building listening to bits of this, this recordings. And not only that, you could create your own piece of music by using the individual sound. So like, what does what does hitting a wall here make? And you could kind of set up a percussive track. And so we created this, originally it was an iPad app actually, which we had a little loop sequencer in it, uh, had an interface you can like, touch on different parts of the building and you would kind of travel through the different zones of the building and then at the end as, as a kind of add-on we went oh there's this uh, new oculus dk2 prototype at that stage it's 2014 and it was like um we could uh yeah we could do maybe we'll just do a little vr bit on it as an add-on to this project and they they liked the idea of that and uh so we produced this we produced the ipad app we produced the um it was my first you know we produced this Oculus Rift version, uh, and it's the first opportunity that I had to actually start to play around with this. It gave me the excuse to buy the kit and get de- get developing on it, and um, that was the bit of the experience. Everyone just loved that part of you know putting on the headset uh, and then feeling like you're really in that space. So we created this. Originally, it was an iPad app actually, which we had a little loop sequencer in it, uh, had an interface you can like touch on different parts of the building and you would kind of travel through the different zones of the building and then at the end as, as a kind of add-on we went oh there's this uh, a new oculus dk2 prototype at that stage it's 2014 and it was like um we could uh yeah we could do maybe we'll just do a little vr bit on it as an add-on to this project and they they liked the idea of that and uh so we produced this we produced the ipad app we produced the um it was my first you know we produced this Oculus Rift version uh, and it's the first opportunity that I had to actually start to play around with this it gave me the excuse to buy the kit and get de- get developing on it and um, that was the bit of the experience everyone just loved that part of you know putting on the headset uh, and then feeling like you're really in that space you know it's really really immersive and you could listen to the, the music there and what we we created this automatic kind of light show so listen to the music and then it'll like you'd have like lights being triggered and particles flowing around you um and actually interesting like that that creating that was not only really the genesis for what embryonic has gone on to do but also some of our other work in music and vr that's come after that tell us a little bit more about embryonic as a company how many people work in your team how did name come about um whether or not you had any co-founders how did you establish the company so there's a lot of questions in one but just give you some pointers yeah. so yeah embryonic um i founded uh by myself um i had some some friends who kind of joined me on the journey and helped me deliver certain projects um we've had got like a core team now of four of us um who are working on products and then we use uh, freelancers as, as and when uh, required. And um, I think, yeah, I, I mean, I think I said this near the beginning, then what, 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 what we are remit is, is to help people communicate using immersive technology. 
Um, that's quite a broad thing because communication, you can have a lot of things inside what is a communication. And we kept it deliberately broad at the moment because, you know, virtuality and augmented reality are such new medium that um, it's, it's not somewhere where anyone's really specialised in one area yet. It's starting to become a bit more of a thing where, you know, people go, oh, we're the company does VR education or we're the company does, you know, VR health therapies. And you're starting to see that. But still a lot of people are still experimenting in the space. And, and we like to do those kind of innovative projects where we tr- get to try something a bit new. And that's always the exciting thing uh, for us in, in, in these technologies. So it sounds like you guys worked on a whole variety of projects. Um, but what is the biggest accomplishment do you think is within the company? Or for you personally, what during your time at the company? I think, the, well, the biggest accomplishment we have as a company is that we still exist um, four or five years later on. If you look at the um, if you look at the rate of failures in startups, I think it's like ninety percent fail after the fir- in the first few years. So I think that's an achievement itself. But that aside, um, what I mean, I guess there's certain projects that we've done that we're we particularly feel are important to us. Um, one of which is Amplify VR, uh, which is our own um, internal IP, which is about exploring how music can be uh, translated into VR. And obviously that's important for us because it's our own, it's all completely generated by ourselves. It's not for a client. And also, it you know, obviously intersects with my own personal interests in terms of music and technology. And I guess part of what I've been trying to do is I've always had this, this split life between making video games. I never wrote the music for video games, um, though some of my music has been licensed for video games, strange enough. But uh, and I, you know, and I've had the music, which I use computers for, but I'm not necessarily... I would say a particularly innovative electronic music producer. I, I, I use electro, uh, sequences and stuff. So I was always kind of quite interested. Is there some way I could bring these two strands of my life together? And so that in some ways, Amplify VR is this kind of ongoing project that we've been working on for a while where um, we've done a lot of experimentation to see what, to really think about what is the future of music in, in immersive medium. And that's particularly um, been rewarding. Um, I mean, there are other great projects that I think we've we've done um, that have been important for us as a company. Uh, we, um, for instance, we've we've just done the project uh, called Deliver It, and we've worked with um, uh, Essex County Council. It's and it's about telling people, uh, telling students, and young people, educating them about the opportunities and logistics industry trying to get basically more people into work into particular jobs um and that sounds quite dry i guess compared to a lot of stuff when you're talking about you know uh, musical buildings coming to life and the center of music and vr but actually uh and you look at the impact that has um and there's recently um the the government has actually recognized this program that we did as being a best-in-class example of immersive technology in education. So they are now starting to put more money into this. So I think projects like that are really, really nice, actually, in terms of uh, our credentials as, as a company. 
even though maybe the, the, the topic isn't quite as sexy as, as maybe virtual nightclubs. That's actually a perfect segue to my next question, which is about Amplify VR. So tell us a little bit more about what is Amplify VR exactly and who is it made for and how people can access it? So that's a very, very good question because uh, Amplify VR is, I think I describe it more as a kind of ongoing project than necessarily an, an end result, but we hope to have some end, end products for it soon. So uh, maybe I'll explain a little bit about the backstory of this because it's actually quite entertaining. Um, the idea for Amplify VR was uh, came from, I received an email uh out of the blue from this uh, French guy. And he, he wrote to me as sure I can, my music um, identity. And he said, hey, I'd like you to play a gig. And I was like, yeah, great, sure, yeah, I, I play gigs. Where do you want me to play? He goes, in Minecraft. I was like, in Minecraft, okay. He said, yeah, what we do is we put on a virtual rave in Minecraft. So you'll be at home, you're streaming your DJ set into Minecraft, there's a virtual avatar of you, and we have 50,000 people, av- players, come into these clubs, and they're controlling, like, they have their own, like, uh, light show effects that they're controlling, and they're <laughs> flying around, and they can explore the place. And I was like, do you want to do it? And I was like, hell yeah. And it was for charity. There was no money for it in it. And I was like, but this sounds amazing. So I, <laughs> I got involved in this, and I, I've got the footage somewhere, I recorded it. Uh, me just sitting in the studio and like having all these kids who were mostly actually complaining about the fact that I wasn't playing e- all the other artists were EDM artists you know it was like kind of I don't, yeah EDM music you know what that sounds like and, and my style is, is deep house which is kind of different and, and quite a lot of the time they were complaining it was like it was too slow for them or whatever but um, but the experience was actually really cool because uh, I was strangely exhilarated by this whole this, this whole procedure and it just got maybe maybe thinking is like, what would this be like in virtual reality? Um, so I had so I had this dream like you know what if you could just go to a virtuality nightclub you know you put on a headset and you'll be transformed there'd be people around and you know you'd have DJs or artists performing gigs and um, you could just have the most crazy tripped out experience because you, you don't have to be in a real venue you could have a gig on the moon or you could just like have you know just feel like you're on an acid trip for the whole, the whole food, throughout the whole thing so I thought about that now what happened is um, a, a funding competition came up uh, that the uh, government was running and they were offering a very small grant uh, to explore ideas about how to amplify music experiences in virtuality and I thought ah maybe this, this, maybe this idea will fit and I, I just I didn't think too much about it but I just Put together some slides and um, submitted it this proposal, and a few weeks le- few weeks later, I realised I'd actually won this competition. Um, so I guess that the competition wasn't that great. And um, so they gave me a, a bit of money and contacts at Columbia Sony Records to develop this idea. My idea was like, could I create a system, a tool set uh, for musicians to be able to put on their own virtual gigs uh so they'll be able to perform they'll be able to decide where they want their gig to be and they could create your own lighting effects and and laser shows or whatever they wanted to do and it's all be virtual and they'd be playing to an audience of other people who have headsets on doesn't matter where they are in the world 
um, and that, you know, could I make that? Now, obviously, the funding I got for doing this was tiny compared to what I'd actually need to do to actually create this in terms of a real product. But they, we didn't have to. We just had to create an ex, a, a trial or a demo. So um, I was working with with with, with Sony and um, yeah, I think what Sony were going to bring to the table was some advice and also like I wanted maybe to have you work with one of their artists and, and put on this demo show. And so in this process, it was over 12 months and um, we basically started experimenting. So we, we did some really initial tests. So the first thing I, I did was I thought, well, maybe like how do you get a performer into virtual reality? So I was thinking, you know, maybe green screen video, you know, like you, you film someone in front of a green screen and then you cut them out and then you can kind of put them in a virtual on a virtual stage. And then I created a virtual auditorium, which was like a kind of sci-fi spacey venue. And you'd walk around the, the, the venue and you could walk around different spots and you could see the performers on the stage. And um, we had all this system. I had all this kind of virtual light show controls. Uh, you could just press a button and then suddenly like lasers would start. I'd press another button, a smoke machine go. Uh, press another button and the roof would come off the top of the venue and you'll find yourself floating in the space. Um, so we did an initial test of that and um, we realised it wasn't as fun as we thought it was. <laughs> and we could, why was that not as fun as the thought it was? Because if you're going to go to a gig, the thing that makes a gig interesting is that you're there with real people and it feels real and you've got a real connection with the, with the artist. Um, and there was no one else in this environment and you were just wandering around watching a pre-canned, pre-recorded uh, performance by this artist. And it feels a little bit artificial, which is fine. So we learned very quickly within like, a couple of months that probably this wasn't enough as an experience that's going to be interesting. So then we experimented with other things that we thought about. Okay, so this is not this isn't a music gig. Maybe it's more like a music video. So what? Imagine if you're inside a. I could be inside a Beyonce video. What would that feel like? So you would start off in an environment, and someone would be the artist would be there, and they'd be they'd be singing to you. And then what if you know when it got to the chorus, like a music video, it cuts to different locations, different shots. So what if you then cut to another place, or you went. You know, you started off in, uh, it was a, a nice sunny day. And then when they're talking about something sad, it starts raining. And how can we build up the sense of really immersion and emotionality in, in, in music through this, through this medium? So we did another demo. And uh, we created a experience. We recorded actually one of my songs from one of my albums that I released uh, a couple of years ago. And we got the singer and we recorded her and we get in green screen and we developed this kind of narrative so you'd start off and you'll be in this garden and the singer will be there and then uh we added in these kind of interactions so things you could do to manipulate the music so for instance um you'd be in this gar beautiful garden it was very kind of surreal because everything was red or it had red leaves you could explore around the garden and there'd be different kind of things there'd be different audio so as you move around the garden the singer would move as well so you'll be kind of like trying to search out the singer moving through the experience and then in the daytime it'll, the the instrumentation would be kind of like quite sort of light and airy but what you could do is you could grab the sun out of the sky with your hand and put it down into the ground and then it'd be nighttime and then like Suddenly it'd be dark and uh, or there'd be all these ravey beats coming in. So we had a, we had a stem mix of the recording and mixed it live depending on your interactions. 
And then at a certain point, you'd go, you'd fly down this tunnel, you'd be floating down this tunnel, and it's all pulsating to the beat. And when you come out, and you'll be in this cityscape, uh, it'd be a different kind of environment. And these cityscapes, they've got, we had buildings jumping up and down to the rhythm of the, of the building, and they had drones flying around. And, uh, and you had musical instruments you could play, those virtual harps, and it all be tuned to the music, and you had drum, drums that you could play. So we created this demo um, internally just to show. Sony, you know, right, hey, this is really cool. And they loved it as well. I mean, it's, it's great. We've never released this demo, which is, which is probably a bit of shame and probably something I should do on my to-do list because it's actually quite a nice experience. Um, but we realised it, again, it was, it's quite a bespoke thing to do to create all that content. If you were going to do that for every single music track, it would take a lot of time and that kind of defeated the purpose. Um so anyway, we were progressing this project with Sony and we wanted to actually release, use one of our artists. But for whatever reason, they were unable to hook us up with one of our artists. So I was running to the end of the project and I was kind of like, you know, I was a bit like, shit, our government's given me a bit of this money and they're going to want to see some results. And I've done lots of experiments, but what, what's going to be the end thing that we're actually going to test with people? So kind of almost in desperation, what I did is I... I then grabbed, uh, I thought, well, why don't I, I want, I need, I need some original source material that we can work with. We haven't got access to the artists, but people make music videos. Okay. Could I take a music video, run it through our kind of technology that we've developed and create experience out of that? And that's where we got with Amplify VR. So what we ended up producing version three of this, uh, this journey we went on was this experience that you could take any mu- music video in YouTube and it would kind of take, which would normally be like, it's 2D, it's in a frame, and we would treat it so it suddenly becomes immersive, it becomes 360, it's around you. And the way we did that is by chopping up the video into lots of different pieces and kind of scattering it around you. So there's different environments that have different ways we treat the video. And then we analysed things like the colour in the video and the beats in the, in the track. We start to move the environment based on the beats and the music and we start to color the environment based on what colors in the video so the whole idea is to just make the video a normal video feel a lot more immersive it's like and that's again the, the title we're amplifying the experience with um with this video content and so that's what we created and then we also want to give the user something to do so we created some like sort of dj controls so you can start to play with some like different dj effects like reverbs and filters with your hands and that's where Amplify VR got, and we did the, the demo, and uh, yeah, people people liked it, but we never really found a commercial angle from it, and I don't think that was entirely our fault for how we implemented it, because I think how we implemented it is actually quite good. I think it's actually generally a problem with the whole VR industry. I think there are a few VR music products out there. The only one that's made any money or had any traction is, well, there's two of them, but it's basically a game called Beat Saber. And Beat Saber is a fantastic piece of work, and I'm full props to those guys, but it's successful because it's a game, ultimately. And they've they've created a great job of creating a game. And if you look at sort of other products on, on the market, if you look at even like well-funded ones, um, sort of like the, the Melody VRs, um, the Wave, which is another one. Uh, but do both doing really interesting things in this space. 
I, I feel that they're still struggling to find their audience and what the core thing of their product is. Um, so I can take some comfort from that, but this is actually a really difficult problem to... Now, what we'd like to do, probably sort of uh, first or second half of next year, what I'd like to do with uh, Amplify, Amplify VR is to actually just get it out into people's hands. And um, we're going to, we have some ideas about how to create a kind of a more kind of a shorter experience for that with lots of different sort of interactions. Um, in order to do that, we actually need to license or have donated some uh, music videos to us. Um, so we're looking for artists who would be interested. And if anyone's listening to this and has a, knows anyone who might be interested, we're probably looking to get about sort of four or five tracks, different genres. Um, it can't just be a track. It needs to be a track that has some kind of video in it. Preferably a track that is reasonably upbeat, has some kind of rhythmic content in it. It works better. Um, and then integrate that into an app that we're going to release we're not sure if we're going to charge for it or it might be might be a very small amount and then just really try just try to get it out into people's hands and see what kind of response we get um and then build build from that so um that's our plan with the project so far now we'll start talking about the whole uh concept of music and vr music in vr and immersive music etc which has been a quite popular topic recently um among the you know music orientated individuals and companies um also somehow related to the xr industry as well so tom in your personal opinion how do you think that using virtual reality and immersive media can influence the way that people appreciate music what's your thoughts on this one what's interesting about this is how well, number one, music is immersive in itself. So it's, I think it is immersive. When you, when you listen to music, you are, it conjures images in your head and it is, the listening experience is quite immersive. But that said, we listen to music more and more in the background and as something that we do when we're doing something else. And that's, uh, that's changed somewhat from how people used to listen to music. There was very much, um, you know, when at, back sort of 20, 30, 40 years ago, it, when there's more of this kind of special thing and people had the vinyl player, they'd, they'd put on the vinyl and they'd put on their headphones and they'd sit back and they'd look at the cover and they would just listen to the album. I think that's very rare now. Probably some people still do that, but it's, it's we, we, we have so much music all the time that it's just bombarding us. I mean, I, I sit in an office and they just pipe music in all the time during that office. I put on my headphones, I'm listening to music. I'm, you know, you look on the, on the tube, people listening to music, but then are they really tuned into it? So the interesting thing about immersive medium is that we're kind of bringing back in one way a way of, of being able to concentrate and cut out those other distractions. And that's exactly what we talked about before we start recording is that it becomes more of an experience, um, which you, I suppose you can compare to compare to an experience of a typical audiophile who goes to the record shop, spends a significant amount of time selecting music, taking it back, buys those records, and they're not cheap in order to put them on a fairly pricey turntable and um, hi-fi speaker system and then maybe dims the lights or turns them off 
all together and really immerse themselves into this experience consciously. And there are some parallels there. So do you think the art could bring it back or does it have those attributes to, you know, to, to bring that back on mass levels as well? This is the big paradox and the one that's a, that's a big question. I don't know the answer to that question. Now, the, the paradox is, is that putting on a VR headset is immersive. And so you could say, well, we can immerse people in the music. But the problem is with wearing a, a VR headset is that you've now given people visuals. So you cannot, it's no longer purely about the music. It becomes about also what you're seeing. And also the thing about VR is people expect some kind of level of interaction in VR. So now you've not given them just music, you've given them something to look at and something to do. The question is at this point, how much of this experience is about music now? Have we taken away from the purity of the music listening experience where should we be doing some, should we be doing anything else? You know, should, uh, this, this is a big, this, and this is why I'm really thankful that we did that Amplify VR project because I feel like we, we tried lots of things but I see other people who've got funding are making still making these mistakes or, or experimenting with, with but we did it a lot cheaper we played around with this idea of like what is the right level of interaction for a vr thing if we put in too much interaction it becomes a game it becomes beat saber beat saber is amazing it's a game the music is a background to that game we don't put enough interaction we have to create interesting visual things for the user to look at are they distracted by the visuals are the visuals adding to the music listening experience um but then if we don't have any of those interactions we just let the music do the talking is a modern audience ready for that and i'm not saying that we've we've ruled those out but all we've done is we've we've pointed out the issues here um that aren't obvious when you look at this from the surface, but once you start experimenting, they do become a bit more uh, apparent. So the question is, well, can we make, is VR the medium to make people listen to music more immersive? I don't know. My, my gut instinct is some, I mean, I mean, there have been some amazing artists who have been creating interesting VR experiences. You know, there's been like the Horizons VR who did the work with Bonobo and some other artists and they did some beautiful work flying. You basically listen to music and you're kind of sort of creating, you're flying down tunnels and over beautiful landscapes and you kind of kind of interact with music there and that's, that's nice. You do it once and you don't do it again. Why is that? Because you've asking the user to completely use up their time for this one experience. And if that one experience isn't something that is utterly amazing that they want to do over and over again, there's a small chance that they're going to take that time out of our busy lives to do that. Whereas listening to music, you can listen to music, you know, your favourite track in lots of different contexts. So I wonder about this thing of music and VR. Um, it's tricky. If you add in lots of other stuff to it, as I say, it doesn't become VR. You then you have to decide what is this new experience. Now that's to say that isn't to say that. But all I'm saying about that is the new VR is a new medium, and it's going to have its own new experiences. And so maybe we're categorizing this wrong. It's not about 
and musical VR experiences. What we're doing, what we're starting to touch around the boundaries are, it's like, what are, uh, what is an immersive experience? And of course, an immersive experience involves audio and it will involve music, but it's not a, a music VR experience. I don't know if I'm making sense. Does that, does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So I think music is super important in immersive space, of course. Um, really interesting thing about, and this is kind of where I guess our worlds uh, start to merge a bit, is how do you make music for immersive experiences as opposed to how do you make immersive experiences for music? Um, and that's fascinating. And that's, again, something that we we started to experiment with. So when, when I... I mean, I was a very fortunate musician, but I'm, I'm a musician and a, and a technologist. So, but when I was creating Amplify VR... I started to think about where sounds were placed. And I, I had a piece of music that we did in Amplify VR, which I'd originally done as a stereo mix. And I had the access to the stems, of course. So then I started to think about where do I put the stems? I have a visual experience. So I'm looking around in a virtual space. Now, where is the music coming from? Because, in, and you'll know this, you know, in the real world, music comes from a speaker or it comes from a musician. Or it comes from, you know, you because you've got positional audio. So, you, like, if you hear a violin playing and you you turn your and look at towards where that violin sound comes from, and it's not coming from anywhere, then that's kind of a there's a slight disconnect in our expectation of of where sound is generated in the real world. And we really started playing around with like where like where are the drums, where's the bass? Okay, bass feels like that should be down on the floor. That's, that's like something, there's something earthy about bass. We expect rumbles to come from the floor. Maybe other elements like orchestral sounds come from the sky. And we started to mess around with these mixes. And obviously the vocal comes from the singer. You, you look at the, the singer and the vocal, the vocal comes from her. Um, so there's this really interesting space about how do we create music for VR? Do we keep it as a stereo mix? And I guess we look at, <clears throat> we could look at video games, you know, like when you create a, um, like sound effects for uh, like an immersive uh, experience, you know the sound effect gets positioned wherever sound gets generated. But then, yeah, where does the music come from? Um, maybe you've got an opinion on this. Yeah, it's it's something I've been thinking about for for a while now, and I suppose it's a good and bad thing. Um, the good thing is that we certainly on the on a boundary of something new and totally different. Although I shouldn't say totally different, it's, it's probably a step within the evolutionary process, uh, as it always is with everything. The bad thing is that we haven't really found um, that solution. We haven't found the answer. I think the best thing to do is just to stay very open-minded and don't draw any conclusions, don't propose any standards, just kind of go with a flow and explore and try different things and and test it. Uh, not just yourself whilst making it, but share with your friends, loved ones, families. You know, like what you just said, you're planning to uh, make a, an application available and see what artists are able to do with it. You know, that's a great way to kind of to see how how the the product or the concept behaves. Um, in various contexts and then kind of extrapolate data and make certain conclusions and 
potentially that can inform some improvements. So that's probably kind of my very vague and uh, unhelpful answer to the whole thing. Just kind of staying curious and proactive about experimenting and exploring opportunities. One thing I will say, <clears throat> and we were kind of touching on this um, during one of the other podcasts, um, Christoph Malle from somewhere else uh, mentioned uh, an interesting um, kind of phenomenon that I haven't haven't thought that much about. The eye is kind of very cognitively expensive for us as species, and um, you know, and which could be one of the reasons. And there probably there isn't a huge amount of research available on this, but there must be a reason why we do a VR experience, which is you know, amazing and, you know, impressive. and But for some reason, we we don't tend to come back to it. Like you said, unless it's a game, um, it's very one-off. And it's really interesting. Why don't we go back and do it again? Especially if it was amazing. Uh, I'm not talking about things that just went good. I'm talking about I, even myself, and I'm sure a lot of people among the audience will agree with me. Even when you go and do something and you just, wow, that was brilliant it's very rare that somebody goes back and says i want to try again same same day or another time so i wonder if there's there's a connection there well i i think there is i think it's the same reason as why why do you not watch the same a tv program more than once or or film i mean we don't we don't often watch the same film we do after a while but we won't go and watch a film then and watch it again because we kind of feel like we've again I think it's that that's that's it's that in, that's that investment in time and that expectation that do we want to rerun this version of reality that we've seen um music is different you now I can listen to a music track over and over and over again probably in a in a in a repeat well if you're a music producer you do because <laughs> you're writing a track and you're listening to your track over and over and over again I wonder if, if that was one of your kind of favourite EPs on albums and it was a immersive VR experience, um, which, you know, was sort of built around the music rather than music moulded around the VR experience. Would you be coming back to that place again, putting VR headset and just having that kind of conscious focused experience again and again? What do you think? Yeah, maybe. I mean, may maybe we just haven't done it well enough yet. We should just keep trying. Yeah, that's another big one. There's just not that much content. Globally speaking, we're talking about um, a few handfuls. Yeah, I mean, there are VR experiences that I have come back to a few times. The ones that have a lot of replayability in VR tend to be social experiences. And that's because there's a variability there, and the variability is other people. Or, as I say, you can you have a game experience. Music, yeah. It's quite possible. I mean, if you can take someone, if you can take someone to another space, and you you, and essentially, what music is about, a, it's about communication. It's about changing people's emotional states. And if you look at, um, there's an interesting space in VR which is around sort of meditation and health. And there's definitely people who will go into a VR experience, a meditational VR experience. And audio is very... And we've done some of these. We did we did a project with an Israeli startup uh, where we created, like, virtual relaxation experiences for... specifically for patients with cancer. 
And actually, funny enough, bringing the circle all around, we asked Tom Middleton to design the soundtrack for it um, because he's very much involved in that, that kind of space now. Um, and that is something, I mean, you have a reason for coming back there, but you essentially come back because you just enjoy being in that space and kind of turning off. And that could suggest that could be a good thing for music. We want to do, we do we want to take that time out of our busy lives and, and immerse ourselves in a piece of music. I suspect the, considering how busy our lives are, we'd probably have to make that just the right length of people, people's time. And it would need to be an experience that, yeah, we quite really kind of adjust our mood in some ways. So maybe relaxation is a, is a first starting point. But, you know, some people who want to be hyped up, maybe they've had a really boring day at work and they just want to just let their hair down. And maybe that's just plugging in, just being in the most intense heavy rock experience you've ever been in. It's just a way to really get out of the aggression. And maybe, maybe the problem is, but yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of interesting spaces yet to explore about length, types of music, what is the right level of vis- visual stimulation that you need uh, to make that interesting. Just going to play devil's advocate for a moment. Um, and if we just remove the music, the quality of music and the kind of all the reasons why people love music and certain genres and artists and all those social and cultural and emotional connections that come with it, if we just remove that from the equation and ask yourself one simple question, what are the benefits of experiencing music through VR or any other immersive medium, mixed reality, augmented reality, 360 video, you name it, compared to traditional formats, which, as we know, has been mono and stereo and there's various other things, but let's just stick to like your typical streaming mp3 format in stereo and let's say comparing that to virtual reality let me just rephrase the question what are the benefits of experiencing music through vr rather than traditional arguably less immersive audio formats well one i mean it's in the title it becomes a more immersive experience in fact you can now you can engage other senses we know that the more senses that you engage the more visceral the experience becomes. And if you can make music more visceral, then it should become more powerful. So... I like that. Yeah. Okay, we'll we'll stick with that one. I'm I'm still convincing myself of that. Um, But again, then you're you're bringing music... You're not really... You're no longer really talking about music. Music just becomes one part of, of something else. Uh, I think that's, that's always the dichotomy you come back to. As soon as you add in other visual media, you're creating something that isn't just music. You're creating something. You're creating something new, and music just has to take one role in it. Well, perhaps that is the you know next step in the evolutionary chain for music. Perhaps that's where it's heading. In the same way, the smartphone has become an extension of most people living in modern world, which arguably maybe takes away some of the human qualities but at the same time extends many qualities so i hope that makes sense in i mean maybe we can maybe we can take a slightly step out and and think well if once we let's let's not worry about we're talking about if we're just talking about immersive music the immersion doesn't necessarily have to involve 
visuals and other inputs. Absolutely not. There's different angles that you could look at this at. So one is obviously extending beyond stereo formats. Okay, so stereo has been the predominant format that we've delivered music in since recorded music, a good 50 years. And there are, that, you can argue that that isn't very immersive because it's not, a stereo mix does not reflect how sound travels in a real space. So if you, if you listen to music, if you go to, if you go to a concert, you could say that's probably more immersive than listening on a head or a stereo mix. Well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know if it is, but it, at least it would feel like it's more in a kind of a, a space that your brain can recognize as a real space. And there's something interesting about creating immersive mixes that allow you to appreciate the music in a more dynamic, interactive way. Because once you have an immersive mix or like a 360 or whatever the format is as a user then you are reacting to that by moving your head turning it which we do naturally i mean one thing that is important to understand is how you know we understand depth perception and the fact that head movements are quite important for us to be able to locate where sounds are the idea of being able to move around within a within an immersive audio virtual environment certainly adds ability so imagine we're in a i mean there's there's a great game um what was it that, that game well, i shouldn't mention it because i can't remember the name of it now um it's when you, you basically you, you play a game completely in audio and you just you have to avoid these monsters and you can just hear them like in the distance but you can't see it so it's imagine it's being like being blindfolded in a room and then trying to stumble your, stumble your way around that room just with sound. That's pretty immersive. Um, and we could imagine uh, creating audioscapes where, or pieces of music that have more than one dimension, two dimensions, or even three dimensions. You know, with a stereo piece of music, I'm stuck in one place. But with these new formats, we can now turn our head or maybe we can walk forward, we can change our experience of it. So there's that level of immersion. You can you could potentially add in other levels of things like you that you consider adds immersion to something. One of the arguments and argument I often take make about virtuality is that the reason we, we prefer creating virtuality with computer graphics and interactive activity is because reality is something that reactive participants in so when we do stuff reality changes you know if i push a cup the cup falls on the ground and that adds to the sense that i'm in a a real world and with 360 video you're locked in one place you have um, no agency you're instantly taken out of the immersion of reality and so you could say well maybe there's something about this interactivity with the music that could add to immersion. And of course, moving around or listening to stuff could be one way, but maybe again, you could interact with it in other kind of ways. Right? You, you know, you've got this new technology. What can you do to interact with a piece of music? Now, quite a lot of people have already experimented with interactive pieces of music, um, typically like through mobile phone apps, 
and other maybe uh, kind of installations and stuff like that. So you could say, well, you know, using these technologies, you could add in layers of interactivity because actually a nice thing about these technologies like virtual and augmented reality, they've invented new ways for us to interact with computers, new gestural interfaces. And we could use those to augment musical experiences. We could use those to actually create pieces of music because that's one thing we haven't really talked about. But can we actually create music in new ways using these technologies, not just passively listen? Maybe the future isn't passive listening. Maybe, maybe the future is using these technologies to bring people together to make it easier for people to communicate through music and be able to create it. It's very interesting. I can talk about it forever, but um, I'm conscious about the time and the length of the discussion. So I would like to move on to a conclusive section of our questions. So I'm now working in the development and now working in the XR industry for almost five years as well. What predictions do you have for future for VR and AR content? And in general, and maybe in relation to music industry as well. I mean, my, my first prediction is as it's going to grow, it's going to become ever more popular and ever more normal. I think there is just too much evidence that this technology has very useful applications. It's not that it's going to be everywhere. It's going to not, we're not going to be using it all the time. But, you know, we can um, education, training, entertainment. There's, there's big sectors where... We just know it's, it's, it's better. So we're really waiting for the cost to come down, the experience to become more refined. Um, so my prediction is, yes, it's going to grow. For sure, I think interactivity is very key. I think social is key, having shared experiences, taking this beyond just having a, a one-person experience these are the things that we're learning as a community as an XR community and they're becoming very apparent about what is working what isn't working with music um that's that's kind of harder so i i kind of see like again i refer to like this the two companies that who've kind of i guess made the most progress and it's just one melody vr uh, melody vr you know their their whole kind of approach has been to essentially offer a kind of second-hand market in in live music experiences so you can't be at a gig but you can kind of virtually be there uh i'd be interested to know how scalable that is i i'm slightly skeptical about i i think there's i think there's definitely a market there i mean i can certainly understand that you know i i watched glastonbury bits of glastonbury on tv so if i can have a better experience to kind of feel like i'm at glastonbury as opposed to actually going there and I, you know, I've been to Glastonbury a couple of times and, you know, it's pretty intense and muddy. <laughs> it's not my kind of thing. So I would actually pay to be virtually in Glastonbury where I don't have to queue up for the toilets and go through crowds and get wet and muddy. But some people like that. Uh, so there's a, there's a market there. And then there's the other, there's other people like uh, the Wave VR, which is a very interesting company who kind of had, I think they had, they had a much, they had basically had the same idea that I had at the beginning. Uh, but it just raised a lot more money to to, to look at it. And I, I know those guys personally, it's a talented team. Um, they, they're looking at sort of the future of kind of music as kind of a, a social virtual festival thing in, in, in VR. And they're very much looking at it as in terms of a computer graphics interactive it's it's virtual it's 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 a medium designed for virtuality and they're they're trying to work out what that is. Um, 
and they're doing some really interesting experiments. So will we be going to virtual gigs? Yeah, I think we will. Um, we'll be hanging out in virtual clubs. Maybe. I don't know if we're going to actually go to virtual clubs because you go to clubs to listen to music and meet girls um, and get drunk. And probably the reasons for you going into virtuality is different. So we will definitely be going to virtuality to do social things together. And music's going to be a big important thing for that. It just might not be a club as we understand it. And music, again, might just be the background track to our lives in that particular case, as opposed to the thing that we're actually doing. I would love to come back to this question in about 12 or 24 months time and see whether we were wrong or right or something in the middle, most likely. Truth is somewhere in the middle, as always. Interesting thoughts. So just coming back to Embryonic for a moment, are there any exciting projects at Embryonic in the works that you can tell us about? Um, there's always exciting projects with Embryonic. I think the interesting thing will be about the Amplify VR uh, and actually getting that out to market. So um, I think I'm quite excited about that. I'm hoping we can get it out on some of the new devices that are coming out early next year. So there's the Oculus Quest coming out, there's the Vive focused. And these are a range of headsets now that don't require um, any leads. They're self-contained. They've got six degrees of freedom, so you can walk around with them on uh, and hopefully not crash into too many things. So, um, and they're, they're quite cheap and affordable. You don't need a, you don't need a PC. Um, so we're really excited about those devices and we think that's going to kind of expand the market quite a bit. And finally, do you have any piece of advice for others looking to break into the industry? Uh, yeah, my advice, I mean, I just, based on my own experience in life, which is not necessarily always the best one to go on, but it's the only one I know. I mean, if you're interested in doing something, don't wait for someone to pay you to do it. You just do it. And these, these all these technologies are there and they're pretty affordable you know um and even if you can't afford a headset you can still learn about it you can still do it so if you want to get into vr or ar go out find the tools go on the internet start experimenting you know like if you want like unity you can download that for free you can get a headset you can get the oculus uh go 200 pounds so you can start creating content for that um see what's out there start doing it and then find like-minded people community i mean it's the same with like with music you know i just started creating music i found other people who are like me who were also interested in making music and once you have those two things things will just happen and they, they just naturally do if you if you show some enthusiasm and stick with it as well you know uh, don't this this isn't this is a long-term future that we're all building together. It's it's not about it's not about get rich schemes. You know, everyone who's doing this, who who's stuck with it, you know, they're doing it because they're generally excited about what what they're creating and the fact that we're going to contribute. We're all contributing to the new future of of, of mankind. And um, whether you make money is secondary. I'm sure everyone would like to make money, but that's not why we're doing it. Do it for the love, and then eventually the money will follow you. Tom, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Now it's time to go and finish our beers. Cheers. Cheers. 
You have been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast hosted by Oliver Cadell with guest Tom Zertzies. This episode was produced by Abigail Bertram, Oliver Cadell, with the help of Shane O'Hare and included original music by Shira Khan. If you can, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out in pushing our show further. The podcast is also available on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Visit 1618digital.com to access the show notes and other episodes. Follow us at 1618digital on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening.